0: Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.RiverCityChicago.com. To worship you, I live. To worship you, I live.
1: morning River City a couple quick community family update communication things before we jump in for one how many of you got to partake in the wonderful breakfast time this morning how many of you were part of that yeah I'm glad you were not enough so I want to first thank those of you who came and thank the, the community group led by Adam and Anne, Gustine and Praj David they're all over there thank you and for the whole group for putting that on this morning you know um I think this is just one of the things that has to be named about River City sometimes. We're not a very big church, which typically in smallish churches, it's easy to feel a sense of connection and that you know who other people are and you feel part of things. This has always been a challenge, I think, for a lot of different reasons at River City, but many people, even people who have been here for a long time, feel like it's hard to be connected and to meet other folks within this space. And so um, we're always trying to be creative and thoughtful about how to create spaces where you can come and in very natural ways meet other people. So I'm thankful for the efforts to create that breakfast time together. And um, that was our first one. So, you know, it's not part of the culture yet, but we plan on doing these. So I hope, can can you try to get here a little early on those Sundays when we do it again and hang out a little bit, get some coffee, get some pancakes, meet some other people? Um, I think that'll be good for us to do. So um, thanks again for that. And we're planning on doing some more of those. Sound good? Um, One other thing, um, you know, I think as a church, much like people, you, sometimes your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. And so I think one of the strength sides of River City is that we've got a very experimental kind of culture where we're always willing to try new things and see what helps advance the mission. Some of the negative downside deficit that often comes with that is we don't communicate how or why it started or how and why it ended when it did. And oftentimes it's just for simple reasons, but doesn't get communicated. So I um, want to just communicate one of those two? you just so we're all on the same page. Uh, a little over two years ago, we formally started for the first time women's mission. And uh, it was, I think by all accounts, a very successful venture. And kind of the backstory behind that, Melissa Walters, who's been a member of the church for a long time, had, had access to a, really some unique women's ministry environments that she was part of and wanted to bring some of that into River City, but was also very conscious of the fact that every one of those environments was, for the most part, all white and wanted to be thoughtful and sensitive about how that would work in River City. So Shamika volunteered to kind of co-pilot with her and really think through how to create spaces like that within river city and so we had a really solid two-year run doing some stuff that i think a lot of good transformational stories came out of that and uh but when a few months ago melissa felt it was time for herself to transfer also kind of then released jamika she's now as you know an elder here at the church and so um that iteration of women's ministry is uh, we're, we're bringing that to a close the bottom line and so it's it's saddle in the sense that it was really effective for people, but it's not like saying forever women's ministry is done at River City. We just want to be thoughtful, say that iteration, that version of it is done for now. And so um, when God raises up the next kind of format for it or the next leaders for it, we'll, with anticipation, be ready to go again on that. But also want to just, I, I like, Shamika's got such a direct but um, uh, uh, kind, kind way of saying things. When I said, why are we announcing this again? She said, uh, River City is not always the strongest in its culture of communication, uh, oh wow, that was—I um, think you just hit me in between the eyes. That was—that was—I could really follow. So th- th- this is this is my stab at improving our culture of communication. Amen. So um, that—that's all I got on that one. I'm thankful to Melissa and Shamika for the work they did on that. Grateful for you women who were part of that. And again, we'll have other kind of activities happening, stuff like that. But wanted to be thoughtful about that. Okay. Uh, we'll turn the corner now, and uh, we're taking these last four weeks of the season of Lent. Lent is the historic season, kind of matching the 40 days that Jesus took in the desert um, to be prayerful and reflective, to fast, to kind of be deeply in touch with the ministry and mission that God had for him. Lent is this season of preparing for, thinking about the significance of the cross in particular, and preparing for the power of the resurrection. So we're just doing a very straightforward four week reflection called uh, The Meaning of the Cross. And each week, um, I'm failing if, if you're not walking away each week from this with like one clear aspect of what the cross means. That's really what we're trying to do here is the cross is such a simple, accessible image at the center of Christianity And yet, despite its simplicity, its accessibility, there's so much dimension to it. There's different themes, different motifs, different lenses through which the cross is viewed and understood in the New Testament. And so we're kind of just picking one each week. So last week, we focused on this idea of the exchange, say the exchange, kind of looked at the supernatural reality that when the cross, when Jesus died on that cross, something supernaturally opened up, that there was the ability for two-way exchange happening, that the sins are... Misdeeds, our behaviors, the darkness inside of us was exchanged and placed onto Jesus by faith. And that by faith, there's something that comes the other way. We get, um, there's different words used the righteousness of Jesus, the justification of Jesus, the new being, the new creature. There, there, there's a newness that comes onto us in its place. And the cross opens up the possibility for that exchange by faith. Uh, this week, um, also, I want to be very straightforward. We are going to focus on the theme of Passover and Exodus. Will you say those two with me? Passover and Exodus. Excellent. Let let us read together. Let's go ahead and stand up. We're going to read from Luke chapter 22. We're going to read from the Last Supper. Famous passage, famous imagery. Um, The Last Supper is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sounds nearly identical in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version. John adds some unique um, imagery to it. We're going to focus on Luke's version. Um, Luke chapter 22 We're going to read verses 7 through 21. Follow along if you will. This is Luke's version of the Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And we'll just, actually, I said verse 20. We'll just stop there, verse 20. We'll stop there with when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, we're going to take a very just straightforward look at the Passover and the Exodus in a moment. But just to put this in context, we're in Luke's account of the final days here. If you just flip back a little bit, we didn't read it, but if you flip back to just even the beginning of chapter 22, you'll see that this is where, this is the point now in Jesus' life where everything's being put into full motion. Um, uh, at the beginning of uh, chapter 22, we see that both human forces and supernatural forces are going to conspire together to ensure that Jesus moves towards the crucifixion. At the human level, we see that almost every version of the religious authorities, the chief priest, the teachers of the law, others, are working to find a way to get rid of Jesus. Judas, one of his 12 apostles, conspires with, and he's going to help them kind of have the inside knowledge of what's going on with Jesus. We even see for the first time, um, it's not the last time, but we see for the first time acknowledgement that there's even um, supernatural evil at work. Verse 3, if we didn't read it, but verse 3 says that Satan is actively part of this plot to make sure that Jesus goes to the crucifixion. So we are entering in, um, when we read this passage about the Last Supper, this is it. Jesus is now on his way to the crucifixion. He's on his way to give himself as a ransom, to give himself as a substitute. And so he's got one last chance, one last chance to be with his disciples, one last chance to communicate to them whatever he wants to communicate. And um, that's what we read, is what he does for his last time with them is he has this last supper. He has, um, on the past, at the time of the Passover, he observes this historic Passover fest, what we'll get to in just a second, uh, one thing, it starts off really slow when we read it. There's all these details about how Jesus sends the disciples, what to look for, what to see, what to do when they get here. And one of the things, I didn't really notice this until I studied it a little bit, but it's really reassuring. One of the things commentators pull out is, isn't it fascinating that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen, right? He has he already grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been prayerful. He's been, pr- he's been ready for this. He understands how significant it is. Now it's happened. Judas has betrayed him. The teachers of the law have betrayed him. Satan is fully up against him. And so from a human perspective, you would expect Jesus to be panicky, right? To be um, very aware of how fast things are moving, very much kind of in a reactionary kind of a mode. And Luke really just goes out, they all do, we're reading Luke's account, Luke goes out of his way to show just how calm and collected Jesus is about this whole thing, right? There's nothing about what's happening that's catching Jesus off guard. There's nothing about what's happening that's putting Jesus on defense. There's nothing about what's happening in the external realm that's shaking him or bringing out some kind of a panicky side to him. Even the level of detail that Jesus goes through as he instructs the disciples what to look for and how to prepare for this Passover, it, everything about it reveals a Jesus who is completely in command of the situation, a Jesus who is completely poised in the midst of a very, I mean, as challenging a situation as you could possibly be. And this, I think, is meant to be some kind of a parable for even helping us not only understand the cross, but even just in our own lives, that when the situations of life start to feel crazy, when it feels like literally all hell has broken loose, it's the natural human temptation to kind of go to a panicky, unpoised kind of a place. And there's something about this to help us remember that even when it seems like all hell is breaking loose, and in this case, it literally was all hell breaking loose, Jesus was completely in control of the whole thing. Jesus still was above the whole thing. Jesus was in union with his Father and with the Spirit to accomplish the larger goal of what had to be accomplished through this. And there's just something really reassuring about it that, that Jesus not only is readying them, he's readying themselves. He, he is readying them for the cross, what he needs to do on the cross. And it shows um, I like how one of the commentaries just called it the, the whole section, which is called the mood of Jesus. That's the whole context of this, is the mood of Jesus, seeing this common, collected Jesus who's ready for it. So I think that just kind of colors some of the context. So then we get to the fact, and in, in this is made explicit in all the accounts, that Jesus isn't just reenacting the Passover feast. This is actually when the Passover feast would happen, the once-a-year feast of the Passover where Jews from all around would uh, celebrate the significance of this. And we see that in verse 14, when he pulls them all together for this final meal, it says, when the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and so Jesus is taking on um, the presider kind of a role of a Passover. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever been to a Passover cedar of some kind before? Oh, that, uh, that's a lot more than I would have expected. Okay, so great. So um, a lot of you have a sense already what happens at Passover. Um, for those of us who won't uh, haven't, I guess this is who it's more helpful for, so the, pa- the, the Passover meal, the Passover cedar uh, is a remembrance. It's a memorial of the most significant moment in the life of the Israelites, right? Where for 400 years plus, the Hebrew people were under the tyrannical rule, of the Egyptians, right? It was brutal. It was long. I mean, boy, 400 years. I mean, can you imagine for some of us, if we ask for God to intervene for something and two weeks goes by, we question whether God's real anymore, right? I mean, can you imagine for 400 years, it's hard to wrap our minds around for 400 years being under this tyrannical rule, being under these oppressive conditions, trusting as best as you can that God is a sustainer, a provider, a rescuer, but wondering, I mean, that's not, for how many lifetimes is that, right? I mean, that's not even within one lifetime seeing the endurance. Like, that's people whose entire lifetimes they were praying and hoping that God would intervene and never seeing any movement of that, right? So, 400 years of slavery, and then this is where the book of Exodus begins. God calls on Moses and says, I've seen the suffering of my people. I'm going to bring deliverance to my people. And so um, the, the Passover and Exodus represents the intervention of God in, in, in human history. And the Passover part gets to when um, God is prepared to move. Um, God says there's going to be an angel of judgment who's going to come. All right? And it's going to bring death to everybody that it touches, everybody. And that the only way, it's not your own record that gets you released from that, when the angel of death comes, the only thing that can release you is to have blood on the door of an innocent lamb who was shed on behalf of the people. And when the angel of death comes, when it sees that blood, it would pass over. And then the Exodus kind of gets to the releasing from bondage, right, where, where, where God brings them out and they go to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea miraculously opens up and they're, and they're freed from bondage. So what happens with the Passover is there's kind of three main elements um, that a presider would kind of lead the community through. Much of Jesus is doing here, and the presider would start by saying, "Why is this day significant?" Right? And the, the stories would begin to be told about the Passover and the Exodus, and then uh, the presider would go through each of the three things: through the bread, through the wine, and um, through the lamb. So when the first, it would be the bread, and the bread, uh, according and if, if you. If you're geeky and you want to get all the details on this, Exodus chapter 12 so is what gives every single detail of what's supposed to happen at a Passover um, memorial service, a Passover cedar. But the bread would go first, and uh, it had to be unleavened, which reminded them that they had to rush out at the very last minute. So it's pointing to the haste and riskiness of the time. Um, no one could wait around for it to rise. And said then the presider would say, this was the bread of our, the affliction of our fathers. And then you get the second element, which was the wine. And the cup would go around four times to represent the four promises that God made to the children of Israel before he took them out. God promised that he would take the people out. God promised that he would rid them of their bondage. God promised that he would pay a redemption price. And God promised that there would be this covenant that he would take them away to be his people and they would be his. All right, so you'd get the bread. And then you get the cup. We see both of those in this Passover, right? So those two elements would have been expected. And, and, And when we're thinking of Last Supper, I think it's helpful to remember when the disciples are sitting around with Jesus, this is not the first time they've done this. Right? They've done this every single year since they were born. Right? Every year at this exact same time in history, they've done this exact same meal. Right. So what Jesus is doing with them is very, very familiar. But this is when you're following along with this to like appreciate how just shocking it would have been. Here's where it took a huge turn. The third element supposed to be the lamb. Right. In fact, the text starts off by saying, um, uh, "Came the en- uh, unleavened." The day of the unleavened bread, which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. That's the main point of the Passover meal, right? Is where the lamb comes to represent the Passover, where the blood is, is put on the doorposts. And Jesus, in these three accounts, Jesus never even, in all four accounts, Jesus never even refers to any kind of a lamb being part of the, the meal. Right, there's there's no lamb there. In John, it goes even further where, where John attaches some language to it. But this is this is where, just to like kind of follow the significance of the of the of the Last Supper, this is where it would have taken a huge turn for them, right? The two things that were so different for them based on every other time they've ever experienced it is first, there's no lamb, right? So clearly Jesus is saying something to his disciples about the cross when there's no lamb. And then secondly, Um, the Passover meal is just a looking back kind of a thing. It's remembering how God had intervened. And so, in some ways, Jesus is doing that. He's remembering. But, uh, yeah, thanks, you've already got this up. Look look in verses 18 through 20. This is where the language would have just been screwing with them um, in realizing how significant the cross was going to be. He's not just looking back in this Passover meal. He's looking present time and even forward. He says this in verse 18. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And then when he takes the cup, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. All right. So every pastor they've ever done has been looking back at what God had done in history in the deliverance. But now Jesus is saying, this is the new covenant. This 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 new covenant is being poured out for you. And so, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, the, the Passover, the same thing that you've always done, is still true. We are remembering the God who passed over, who showed grace, who delivered from bondage. But it's also new at the same time, that um, Jesus directly inserts himself into it. He says, I, when you look at me and when you look at what I'm about to do at the crucifixion, and he had been telling them. He had been telling them about the cross. This was not um, unfamiliar to them. They just hadn't fully grasped it. He's saying, when you look at the cross, that is the ultimate Passover. That is the ultimate Exodus. That's the key. That's the legend. That's the way to understand one of the deep meanings of the cross. Tracking with me? So I'm now from this before, not going to say anything new. I'm just going to draw two applications out of it. I just, I just, Again, it's as simple as we can on this, because I, I, I'm, I'm hoping from this series that we've just got some kind of ways of looking at the cross that we carry with us. And so just two applications from it that I would love to just kind of have you be reflecting on, be considering on, um, and, and they're both off of just this simple thing. So idea number one, when we think of the cross, all right, when we think of the meaning of the cross, one of the most fundamental meanings of the cross is to think of it as the Passover and the Exodus. Right. So when we think of Jesus on a cross, when we think about him resurrecting, when we think about what he had to do, one of the most fundamental ways to come back to its meaning is to locate what Jesus did in this ancient story of the Passover and the Exodus. All right. There's this woman, Fleming Rutledge, who's written a book that um, a lot of people are benefiting from right now. It's a deep exploration of the cross. It's, it's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Meaning of the Cross. And She summarizes, this is just the same thing as saying, thinking of the cross as Passover and Exodus. But if this helps you, and if, this is, if you're a note taker, I would write this part down and I'm happy to email it to you if you forget it. But um, she just puts a sentence on each one of these. What does it mean that it's Passover? What does it mean that it's Exodus? So, so here's, the, here's the two ways she says it. Number one, the cross rescues us from death as on the night when the dark angel passed over the homes of the Israelites. Okay, so I'm gonna just say that a couple times so you can just kind of sit, sit in that. that. That's the Passover part, that it rescues us from death as on the night when the dark angel passed over the homes of the Israelites. You got that? And then secondly, it's deliverance from bondage, as in the climactic passage through the Red Sea. It's not either or, it's both. Right, you, 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 uh, Holding on to both of these images of the Passover and of the Exodus, that it rescues us from death, as on the night when the dark angel passed over the homes of the Israelites, and it delivers us from bondage, as in the climactic passage through the Red Sea. So again, not trying to be clever or complicated here. I, I, I'm trying to give us some like really clear resources. So these are ways we can reflect on it. So if the first one is that it rescues us from death in the same way as when the angel passed over, uh, that's a way to reflect on the cross, that that's what God says is true about us, whether we see it as true, that without God, we're dead. It's that straightforward. Without God we are dead. That is how God sees the situation that we're in, right? And that's part of the awakening that has to happen to every person is coming to that collusion. Without God, we are dead. And then to see that death is not what God wants for us, right? In the same way that the blood represented the ability for the angel death to pass over, God's intention for us is life, right? And so there's this, There's this the longevity of that. I just think it's so beautiful that the Bible starts essentially with the Exodus story after Genesis, and then that motif is used all the way through the rest of the way. Right, like God is trying to make it as clear as possible how this works. Right, that God's intention is not that we would have death, that we would have life, and then it colors it in just a little bit differently. That second piece that um, that we need deliverance from bondage. That in so many ways, um, what physically happened to the Hebrew people under the enslavement of the Egyptians is what at some level is true of every human being, right? For some, socially, it actually is what's true. For spiritually, it's what's absolutely true for everybody, that we are actually in bondage, right? That there's, there is an evil force, that uh, an evil bondage that we need to be released from and that we need God's saving intervention faith to deliver us from, and I think that imagery of the Passover and the Exodus becomes just one of the really clear ways to consistently reflect on the cross. And Dad just one one more piece. This is kind of more personal piece on it for me. But as I was reflecting on it, you know, when Jesus does these remembrance ceremonies, it's in the context of community, right? He's it's it's not just a one on one. It happens in a communal kind of context, even though it has one on one application. Same when Paul um, talks about it elsewhere. And it made me this is just as, as simple as it came out in my own personal reflection time. I thought, you know, the story of the passes and the over looks really different and sounds really different depending on which side of the privilege power spectrum you're on. When, when somebody like myself who represents more spaces of privilege looks at it, I, I mean, I can name these things that are true, the Passover, the deliverance from Exodus, but it doesn't totally match my lived experience, if I'm honest, right? I don't have a lived experience that is equivalent to what the, Egypt, the Hebrew people experience, where it's like, Lord, save me or else. Lord, if you don't intervene. Right? Um, it's more of a conceptual understanding for me. And oftentimes when you, when you represent margin, spaces of margin, that uh, there are so many historical accounts of people of marginalized groups who the story of the Exodus was the literal spiritual resource that got them through right It was the sustaining power to get them through, and i felt, i don't know I don't know if you need to hear me say this or not, but I almost feel like I have to confess when I preach things like this that I still think it's the truth and I still think I'm allowed to proclaim the truth, but I realize I proclaim it like as looking through a glass half full um, because my own my own journey of seeing the depths of bondage I'm in is one I'm still very much in the midst of, and it's why I personally realize how badly I need brothers and sisters who represent those those spaces of pain and struggle, oppression of margin, not that there's anything good about that, but there is a depth of sight, a depth of understanding that comes from that, that I so badly need in my own life. And I think that we as a community so badly need and why it's important that we remember together, right, because that's ultimately what Jesus says. He's, he says, do this remembrance of me together in the context of community. So just to, just to lock that one down one time, the, the, the imagery, just the very simple imagery, what is the meaning of the cross this is one of the ways to, to, for yourself, carry the meaning of the cross. What does the cross mean? We tie it back to the Passover in the Exodus. Being passed over, saved from death, being delivered from bondage as when they went through the Red Sea. That's one of the most explicit meanings of the cross. you tracking with me on that? That's really the main idea. Um, just the second application of it, though, just to kind of pull them out a little bit, is to... Reflect on these passages the way, the explicit way in which Jesus puts himself in the very middle of that story, right? When, when, when Jesus distributes the cup and distributes the bread but doesn't distribute the lamb, it is really clear he is saying, I am the one that was what this whole thing revolved around. Right. Uh, In fact, this is where John adds in his own words. The Apostle John uh, he uses the words of John the Baptist, who says, "Behold, it's the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Right? Jesus, Jesus helping the disciples understand something that maybe they had thought about, maybe they had not. But when that when that Passover meal was experienced year after year after year for hundreds of years, when Jews from around the world would do that, you know, some people had to sit in that circle and go, "How was it that?" an innocent little lamb in its blood was powerful enough to prevent the angel of death from coming through. Right, That had to be a question that thoughtful people were wrestling with around the years. At the Last Supper, Jesus definitively answers that question. It was never those lambs that had the power. Right? It's what those lambs pointed to, that there actually did have to be this cosmic sacrifice made by God on behalf of us that is what made the Passover and Exodus work back In the Old Testament, and it's what makes the Passover and Exodus work for every single one of us. It's his sacrificial work as the lamb that creates this power, this provision for us. And so so when we think of the Passover and the Exodus as a way to understand the cross, it's important we go all the way to the centrality of Jesus. So when we think of the Passover part, that death passes over me, that life is given to me, that sin is forgiven, how does that happen? It's because of what Jesus did. That's what he wants his disciples so clearly to see. How is it that there's power to be delivered from bondage? How is it that Red Sea opens up? It's not through anything that the people did. It's through the power of Jesus that that happens. That's the power to deliver us from bondage in our own lives. And, and it's Jesus himself who puts, him, puts himself in the center of that story. Right. This is his last word before he goes to the crucifixion, is this meal together and this command to do this in remembrance of me. Right? And so it is him, it is he himself who asks us to consistently remember the meaning of that and to remember the role that he played in that story. Concluding thought, and then we're going to transition into worship. Concluding thought, I like this from the same book from Fleming Rutledge. You know, this phrase is very famous here when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. What verse is that where he says this? Yeah, so verse 19, he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And uh, she, she just, she plays around with that word remembrance or memory. And she said sometimes in the modern context, we don't appreciate the full depth of that word. She says the most common, and I, I think this is probably right, she said the most common way we tend to use memory is more like a memorial. So, like, for a lot of us, when we think of the Passover service, we think of more as a memorial. that it's remembering something that happened in the past, remembering the significance of that. It says that's not incorrect, but it doesn't get to the full depth of the word memory or remembrance in the, in the Hebrew sense. And so, um, she says in the Hebrew sense, memory is a calling to mind. And remembering is to take something that happened in the past and to bring it into the present in an active kind of a way. She said, the Cedar Supper is not a memorial of God's saving action in the past. And this is a thick sentence, but try to follow what she says. She says, it's an appropriation of that same saving power here and now. When we repeat Jesus' words, when we reflect on Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me, we're not actually just thinking about the Passover and Exodus. We're not just thinking about Jesus in the upper room. We are acknowledging that right now, right here, Jesus is active at our community in our space, wanting us to see that he's accomplished the same thing for us here and now. That he invites us into this in a very real-time kind of a way. That that's actually what remembering is. It is taking the events of the actual literal Passover in Exodus. It's taking Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. But it's, Bring that into present tense and putting ourselves into that situation and trying to join it. And so, it's, it's as far as your imagination can go, it's, an, it's totally appropriate to do this, to insert yourself into that situation where Jesus is doing these things, where he says, here's the bread that's broken for you, here's the cup that's poured out for you in the same way that the angel of death passed over, in the same way that I led the people out of bondage, that's what I'm doing for you. That's by faith, it's all yours. and, that's what I want to invite us to do in these final moments together as we sing together about the beautiful name of Jesus, which hopefully patches like this help that kind of a song, help those kind of a lyrics take kind on of even additional meaning. When we're saying what a beautiful name, we're reflecting on, we are remembering who he is, what he did, what he accomplished, but in present tense, who he is now what he's accomplishing for us now, what he's done for us now, and the way that brings us into a sense of salvation, into liberation, into healing, into forgiveness of sin and deliverance from bondage. And we're reflecting on the beauty of that, on the magnificence of that, and praying that God will reveal that to the very deepest parts of our heart and soul and mind so that we can live as new beings. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand together as we prepare to head out into... You know, after God delivered the Hebrew people, after the Passover and the Exodus happened, over the rest of the course of the Old Testament, the word you see more often than any other word is the word remember. God consistently says to the Hebrew people, remember, remember what I did for you, remember what I did for you, remember what I did for you was grafted into the very lifeblood of how they thought of themselves. And so now Jesus comes, and in that last supper, he picks up on the exact same thing of remembering the Passover and the Exodus. But now he says, do this in remembrance of me. He, puts him to, he doesn't change the story. He just puts himself into the middle of it. And so it's almost impossible to remember this too much to reflect over and over again on the reality of the Passover and the Exodus that we're both spared from death and freed from bondage. And so may you remember that. May you remember what a beautiful name it is that even before you thought to ask for the need to be delivered, Jesus had already declared himself as the one who sets us free. And all God's people said, amen. Love you all.